Last week we went through two chapters, today we're also going to go through two chapters, but uh, I'm not going to make you stand as I read it like I did last week, but we're actually going to read a very specific section uh, of what we're going to go through, and I think you'll see how we're going to come back to kind of land on this section. And so our scripture reading for today comes out of Revelation 7, actually starting in, in verse 9. The Apostle John says this, after this I looked And behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes robes, and with palm branches in their hands and crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures and they fell on their faces before the throne And worshiped God, saying, Amen. Blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Then one of the elders addressed me, saying, Who are these clothed in white robes, and from where have they come? I said to him, Sir, you know. And he said to me, These are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white with the blood of the Lamb. Therefore, they are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. They shall hunger no more, neither thirst any more. The sun shall not strike them, nor any scorching heat. For the lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd, and he will guide them to the springs of living water. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Let's pray. Father, I feel it every week, but I feel it specifically today, the the need for your help to, to guide us and to speak to us as we go through not just a big chunk of scripture, but a very complicated chunk of scripture. And so I, I, I pray that this morning, as we, we cover a wide swath of revelation, I pray that that wide swath would, uh, would not cause us to walk away confused, but, but that by your spirit, you would speak to us a very specific word. God, I pray that as we, we consider the, the ways in which, as we'll see, the kingdom of God come against, comes against the kingdom of evil, God, I pray that your spirit would help us to have courage and to, and to see the ways that you've promised to help us to endure that. God, I pray that you'd help us to feel the ways in which we see evil going out in the world and what we'll cover today causing great calamity and crisis and that we would feel that, but at the same time, we would not be frightened into despair, but that by your spirit, we would take courage and we would see that by the shepherd who leads us and guides us and protects us, we can make it through. And so, Father, I I pray that you would unite your power with my weak words today, 
and that you would help us this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, good morning. Uh, if you're new with us today, uh, I want to welcome you and let you know that you meet us here in the middle of an interesting sermon series. Uh, as you saw from the scripture reading and even as we've said somewhat already in the service, uh, we are going through the book of Revelation. Uh, and I know that, that finding a church is already a little bit of a strange and uncomfortable experience. And so I would imagine that strange and sense of discomfort maybe gets ratcheted up when you walk in and you find that you're visiting a church going through the book of Revelation. Uh, it, it's a strange thing. But, but I want you to know we're, we're going through Revelation not because we each have our own personal tinfoil hat and we each spend our time doing math about when Jesus is going to come back. But we're actually in this book because here at Icon, we take discipleship to Jesus seriously. Uh, we really believe that, that our truest identity is in Jesus and so that our whole life is revolving around what it's like and, uh, to follow Jesus. We, we take that really seriously. And to do that, to take our discipleship seriously, we need something that these original hearers of Revelation needed, resilience. In order to endure as a Christian who follows Jesus faithfully in Seattle, we need a little bit of resilience. We each need a little bit of strength infused into our journey with Jesus. And, and I believe that the book of Revelation actually does just that. Through this book, we get profound imagery and a striking retelling of what's really going on in the world at all times. The book of Revelation is not a, not a book about just the end, but is actually peeling back the curtain so that we can see what is going on at all times. And when we see that, through that, we are enlivened to live faithful to Jesus. That's why we're going through this book. And today, we get to the point in Revelation where most people totally give up. <laughs> We get to the point in Revelation where if you're going through Revelation and your Bible study plan or your Bible reading plan, you just say, I'm going to go back to Romans, right? Uh, I'm going to go back to what's easy. And even sometimes churches that, that preach through Revelation, this is the point where they just say, oh, this, is, this is good. We're, we'll just go five chapters in. But the first five chapters of Revelation are relatively tame, Right? So far, we've, we've gotten an interesting picture of Jesus in chapter one. Uh, we've gotten to listen in on Jesus's rebuke and encouragements for the churches that this letter of Revelation was originally written to. Uh, and even last week, it got a little bit weird, but it was still understandable. We, we got a picture of the throne room of God, and we, we saw that the, the agent of God's action in the world is actually a, a lamb that was slain and yet is still standing. All of it so far has been somewhat understandable, right? But today, we get to chapter 6 and 7, where things seem to kind of go off their hinges. All of a sudden, we have images of, of horsemen coming in and, and wreaking havoc on the world. We get a, a really big number that is oddly specific around who belongs to God, 144,000. <laughs> things get strange here, and so... Uh, as we get into this, I, I just want to reassure you that the weirdness means something, okay? I said that at the beginning of this series. The weirdness, the imagery that we find, it means something, and it's important for us to get. 
And so we'll, we'll dive into this, and, and I'm glad that we're in this weirdness because now, you know, one, one of my great hopes of going through this book also is to kind of demystify Revelation for you and help you to see why this is so special and, and really what's encouraging about all of this. So, so toward that end, toward demystifying some of this strangeness, let me provide some explanation for what we're getting into here today. So we're going to go through chapter 6 and chapter 7, uh, and if you remember back to last week... We were given John's vision of the throne room of God. And in that throne room, along with the beauty and strength of God being displayed, John, again, saw God's agent of action within the world. And and it was a strange sight, totally on brand, right, for Revelation. It was a lamb that was slain and yet standing. Now, his vision of the lamb was all within the context of a small detail that he noticed in his vision. That there was a scroll within the hand of God. And on this scroll was written all the plans and purposes of God. That within this scroll, God's kingdom is described. His desire for the world, bringing his kingdom back on earth, is written on this scroll. And the only one that was worthy to open the scroll and thereby bring God's kingdom was the slain yet standing lamb. And so the lamb, Jesus Christ, had been slain and in his death, his death in our place, he, he won the victory against evil. And because of that, he is worthy to bring God's kingdom and enact God's purposes. Okay, that's where we ended yesterday. And then now we get to the point where the lamb starts cracking open some of these seals. And after each seal, as you'll see, uh, some crazy, crazy, crazy things happen. Uh, what, what's happening here? Let me, let me set it up a little bit so that we can understand. After each of these seals is broken, I want you to think in the category of reaction. Has anyone here read chapter six? Who's read chapter six? Yeah, yeah, okay. Well, basically, let me just describe it then. Basically, Jesus is opening these seals in order to enact God's kingdom into the world. And then all of a sudden, at least for these first, first four seals, there are four horsemen that show up. Anyone heard of the four horsemen of the apocalypse? Yeah, that's a pretty common category, even culturally. Uh, we understand that it, it, it's weird. And, and I want you to understand that when Jesus opens one of these seals, the things that happen after that are a reaction, not of the kingdom of God, but actually of the kingdom of evil. You see, Jesus is bringing, through opening these these seals, bringing the kingdom of God on earth. And this is the first point in Revelation where we see a different kingdom, another power, another entity come on the scene as well, and it is the kingdom of evil. Jesus opening these seals brings God's kingdom onto earth and the kingdom of evil is going to push back. As the seals are broken and God's kingdom is coming on the earth, it brings an inevitable collision with the kingdom of evil that's already at work in the world. If you remember back to week one, which again, I don't expect you to, one thing that I talked about is that throughout the book of Revelation, one thing, a phrase that keeps coming up is uh, John uh, hearing someone say, I will show you the things that must take place, which for Revelation, what that means is I'll show you the things that, of course, this is going to (laughs) happen. 
The things that must take place is not just a chronological type of set, but it's actually the things that, that of course happen. Of course, when two kingdoms collide, there is friction. There's friction, there's, there's calamity. And so as we'll see as we go further into this book, the, the kingdom of evil has set itself up against the kingdom of God, and yet it is a kingdom that knows of its defeat. It knows what we read last week, that the lamb is victorious. And so as a reaction, evil is seeking to throw in its last shots at slowing the progression of God's kingdom. So Jesus opens the seals in chapter six and chapter seven, and as a reaction, in order to slow down the progression of the kingdom of God, evil gets to work. Every bit of calamity and craziness that we see in these two chapters is due to evil throwing some dirty shots in order to slow down what they know is their eventual defeat. And so let's get into Jesus opening the seals now that we understand maybe a little bit of what's going on. Let's, uh, if you have your Bible, go ahead and open it up. We're in uh, chapter six here. It says, now I watched when the lamb opened one of the seven seals and I heard one of the four living creatures with a loud voice like thunder saying, come. And I looked and behold, a white horse and its rider had a bow and a crown was given to him and he came out conquering and to conquer. So the first horse of the apocalypse, the, the reaction of evil against the kingdom of God is a white horse. Now, what I just said there might actually confuse you because I would guess, if you're like me, when you read something about a white horse coming out and a crown to, to conquer, you might actually think that this white horse is, uh, the, the rider on this white horse is Jesus himself. But, but actually, friends, it's, it's not. This, this is a white rider that seems like Jesus, but it is not. Later in Revelation, we get another white rider on a horse, uh, and that is Jesus. It shows that his name is faithful and true, and he has a tattoo on his thigh, which always tells me tattoos are biblical, right? <laughs> right? Can I get sleeves here, guys? Okay. Okay, cool. Tattoos are biblical. Anyways, Jesus, uh, <laughs> this is a, a, an imposter that's actually seeking to, to, uh, to, to deceive people into thinking that he is Jesus. And, and I know this because actually, if you look back at Matthew 24, Jesus gives a whole lot of context around what's going to happen when the kingdom of God confronts the kingdom of evil. And the four things that he warns about match up exactly with these four horsemen, the first of which is spiritual deception, false teachers. Jesus warns in Matthew 24 that there will come a day when the kingdom of God and the kingdom of evil collide where spiritual deception will run rampant, where false teachers will seek to come into the church and even into the culture and try to lead people away from Jesus. And so the first reaction of evil to the kingdom of God coming on earth is actually to deceive people. It's to deceive them away from the truth of God. And then right after that, I'm gonna go through these quickly so that we can actually get to really what we're gonna land on. After that, we, we, we see a, a red horse. He, he says this in verse three. When he opened the second seal, I heard the second living creature say, come, and now uh, came another horse, bright red. Its rider was permitted to take peace from the earth so that people should slay one another, and he was given a great sword. So next comes a, a red horse that represents war and violence. 
Evil is, is seeking to fluster up the world toward violence and war, the, the opposite of the kingdom of God that is meant to bring peace, right? And so this writer is trying to stir up and fluster humanity into violence, which is not that hard because as we all know, there's, there's violence within our hearts already. <laughs> The, the, the thing that this writer is seeking to pull out of people is, is not that hard to pull out. We see that in our world today. There's violence and war all across the world, but also we know that violence is in us because we, some, some of us have kids, right? Anybody? Anybody? <laughs> kids are violent, man. We, we have two kids. I, I have two kids. And those those kids are violent toward one another. I never had to teach my son how to bite. I never had to do that. He didn't learn that because he saw me getting mad at my wife for eating the last bag of chips and just biting her arm, right? That was already in him. Human beings are, are violent creatures and it comes to us naturally, but what comes to us naturally is really flustered up by this red horse. In order to stop the kingdom of God that brings peace, in order to work against that, evil wants to fluster up humans to war and to violence. After that comes a, a, a black horse where he says this, when, when he opened the third seal, I heard another living creature say, come, and I looked, and behold, a black horse, and its rider had a pair of scales in his hand. And I heard what seemed to be a voice in the midst of the four living creatures saying, a quart of wheat for a denarius and three quarts of barley for a denarius and do not harm the oil and wine. What is that? <laughs> what is that? What's going on there? Well, well, this black horse is meant to symbolize and bring famine and need. The thing that, this, that John hears, a quart of wheat for a denarius and three quarts of barley for a denarius, those are poverty rations. A, a denarius was a whole day's wages back then. And these people are getting a quart of wheat for that. They're getting three, three quarts of barley for a denarius. These are poverty rations. But did you notice what it said at the end? Do not harm the oil and the wine. What's that saying? This black horse brings famine and need. And the way that it does that is by taking away everything that we need and giving us everything that we don't need. It takes away the basic rations of survival, but it doesn't touch the oil and wine. It brings famine so that we have nothing we need and everything that we don't. Which, friends, just as a side note, if there's, if there's any description of what life is like today in the 21st century, is it not that? Nothing we need and everything we don't need. I know that when we think of famine, we just think of just the physical categories, which we should think of those things. But also there are spiritual famines. There are existential famines. And I think we see that all across the world today, that people have nothing they need. They have no sense of purpose, but they have everything that they don't need. They have luxuries, they have comfort, they have social media, they have all these things that don't really provide what they need. Listen to this from the writer Elijah Del Medio. He says this, the brutal, painful fact is this. The average person living in a Western country increasingly has nothing to live for. He or she has little family, few friends, no neighborhood, no community, and no God. He or she exists mostly as a ritual of economic activity, 
a number on a balance sheet. That's the black horse, friends, bringing a famine of the soul where we have nothing we need, no joy, no meaning, no purpose, and everything that we don't need, just a bunch of comfort that makes us easy and makes us into a ritual of economic activity. Next, there is the pale horse. Listen to this. When he opened the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth living creature saying, come. And I looked and behold, a pale horse and its rider's name was Death and Hades followed him. And they were given authority over a fourth of the earth to kill with sword, with famine and with pestilence and by wild beasts of the earth. The final rider of these four horsemen of evil bringing chaos and calamity on the earth is sickness and death itself. Brings death into the kingdom of God coming on earth that is meant to bring life everlasting. Evil reacts to that by trying to ratchet up the death rate. Trying to ratchet up the death toll. And in fact, even we see this because not just because of what it describes, but also the color of the horse. We read pale horse, but actually the Greek word for this pale is yellowish green. Is that anyone's favorite color? <laughs> That's like mucus. <laughs> No one's like, man, I can't find a shirt this color. I don't don't know why I can't find it. It's meant to gross us out. It's this disgusting color that represents death. And then after that, the seals number five and six are broken. And as that happens, seal number five, religious persecution breaks out. Kill the witnesses. Kill those who witness to Jesus Christ. That's one way to try to stop the kingdom of God. And then finally, seal number six is broken, and and you find that there's this great cosmic crisis. The sun goes black, and there's earthquakes everywhere. And and really what's happening is that the creation, which for so long, as Ephesians 2 says, has been under the reign of evil, well, as the regime change happens over into the kingdom of God, all of the cosmos reverberates and is thrown into disarray. Seals number one through six Calamity, crisis, death. The kingdom of evil has assigned some of its best agents to bring calamity to the earth in response to the coming kingdom of God. It's throwing its best, last, dirty shots in order to stop what they know is inevitable, in order to slow down the reign of the lamb who is Victorious, And the response of the world is this. Listen to this from chapter 6, verse 15. Then the kings of the earth and the great ones and the generals and the rich and the powerful and everyone, slave and free, hid themselves in the caves among the rocks in the mountains, calling to the mountains and rocks, fall on us and hide us. Who can stand That's how chapter six ends. Remember the context. The kingdom of evil is doing everything it can to stop the kingdom of God and the reaction of the entire world, even the strongest and most powerful is, kill us. I'm gonna go into the cave, let the rocks fall down on me so that I don't have to endure this crisis and calamity any longer. Everyone starts running for the hills. Everyone is seeking shelter. Nothing can save them. Not the government. They're hiding in the cave. 
Not the military, they're hiding in the cave. Not the rich and the powerful, they're hiding in the cave. The action of evil brings the world to its knees and they are left to question who could ever stand such hardship? Who could make it through? Well, that's a question that chapter seven answers, which is the crux of this sermon in many ways. Before the breaking of the seventh seal, we get somewhat of an interlude. In response to that question, who can stand? John sees all of a sudden a mass of people beyond number that are sealed by God. So he first explains that he sees 144,000 people uh, in the people of God. He breaks out this number as 12,000 people from the tribes of Israel. Now remember, the numbers in Revelation are symbols, not statistics. Uh, if 144,000 people are the only ones that are saved, can we just go on a hike right now? Because this is a waste of time. I'm sure that number has been filled up, okay? Surely there's more than 144,000 that are saved. There's more people that watch the Super Bowl than 144,000. God's doing better than the Super Bowl, right? Right? Can I get an amen? Thank you. This is a symbolic number that's meant to show a great number, 12 times 12 times 1,000. There's, there's so many people here, and, and we see that this is a symbolic number because even right after that, John again sees a large mass of people, and it's a, it's a number beyond counting, a number beyond counting. He says that, let me flip over my Bible here. He says, after this, I, look, I looked and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, they were standing before the throne and before the Lamb. A mass number of people, a large mass that is singing the praises of God right on the heels of that question in chapter six. Do you see the connection yet? Who can stand? The people of God. The people of God can stand in the midst of calamity and crisis. This, this large mass of people in the midst of all of this hardship and trial being exercised on the world by evil, they are not hiding in the hills. They are not calling for the mountains to fall down on them and just end their suffering, but they are enduring. More than that, they are singing. If you remember that from the scripture reading, they are singing. All of this is meant to answer that lingering question, who can stand? Who can make it through when things like chapter six happen? When there's famine, when there's death, when there's spiritual deception, when there's war and violence, when the whole creation feels like it's falling apart at the seams, who can stand? The people of God. The people of God are able to stand amidst all the assaults of evil. The people of God can stand. Listen, listen to this from Eugene Peterson in his book, Reversed Thunder. These people are not only secure they are exuberant. This is a curious but wholly biblical phenomenon. The most frightening representations of evil in Revelation 6 are set alongside extravagant praise, Revelation 7. Christians sing. They sing in the desert. They sing in the night. They sing in prison. They sing in the storm. 
The songs of this vision are the response to the statistics of evil. Any evil, he says, no matter how fearsome, is exposed as weak and pedantic before such songs. In the face of evil's greatest efforts to slow the kingdom of God, the people of God sing. The question of who can stand in the face of trial and hardship, that is answered with a scene that describes not just security, not just people standing, but exuberant joy in the people of God. While everything falls apart and while everyone falls away, the people of God are able and are meant to stand. And it is here, friends, that I think there is a necessary challenge for us. I've been saying this the whole time as we go through this book, but one thing Christians need today in order to be faithful disciples of Jesus is resilience. And in this text today, as we see the people of God singing in the face of evil, we should see this great truth, that resilience for you as a disciple of Jesus is possible. You can make it. You can keep going. You can keep walking. No matter what pressures come against you, no matter what evils you see in your own life or out in the world, you can keep going. I mean, we see this all throughout church history, right? If you know anything about church history, you know that it's a history of the people of God enduring. (laughs) Whether starting here in Revelation for these early Christians in the late first century, or through the Reformation, or even this week I I was reading through in in study for this sermon some of the old African-American spirituals that they sang in the face of degradation in the face of evil, in the face of spiritual deception as deceptive men twisted scripture in order to keep them in slavery. They sang, they sang, they endured, they had resilience. Resilience is in our history as followers of Jesus. But I'm worried that today, we as Christians count ourselves out before we even put forth the effort to endure. I'm worried that we really don't think we can make it. (laughs) That we really don't think we have what it takes to continue to to follow Jesus faithfully in real life. I, I think we're in many ways intimidated. Listen, we live in a incredibly fragile society. And especially here in Seattle. I think people here in Seattle are are really loud and have such strong opinions, but are deep down so fragile. And I'm worried that that fragility has seeped into Christians. Now listen, I, I know hardship. I know what it's like to suffer. I've shared very vulnerable ways in which life has been heavy for a long time where I felt the weight of discouragement and anxiety. I know what it's like to have hardship and to feel like your knees are about to give out, to face suffering that feels like it's gonna undo any strength 
that you have. And what I'm saying here, what I'm, what I'm trying to say is, is not being said with rose-colored glasses that makes it seem like endurance and standing in the day of trial is easy. I'm not dismissing the weight of trial. Revelation 6 doesn't do that. It speaks honestly about suffering and evil. But what I am saying is that many of us don't recognize and therefore don't tap into the strength that is available to us to endure. We just get too afraid. We tap out in the trial. We, we, we run to sin. We run to all these things in order to, to numb the pain of our suffering, not realizing that as a disciple of Jesus, you've, given, you've been given everything you need to endure, <laughs> to keep going. I mean, these, these people that John sees... He sees that they are sealed, which in the language of the New Testament often refers to being sealed with the Holy Spirit of God. These Christians and us have been given the very Spirit of God. Now, I don't know how that works. I'm a pastor and I've done a lot of study. I don't know if the Holy Spirit is in your tummy or not. I don't know. (laughs) But what I do know is that scripture says you have a helper. You have a helper who's ready, and not just ready, but able to give you strength to make it through. There's nothing in chapter 7 that makes it seem like these Christians who made it through the Great Tribulation, that they did it because it was their own strength, because they just had enough good old resolve. No, they made it because they were sealed by the Spirit of God. And if you're a Christian here today, if you've placed your faith in Jesus, you've been given the Holy Spirit. You've been given the one who is able to give you strength and resilience in the midst of trial and pressure. And so my word for you here today is don't overestimate evil and suffering and don't underestimate the spirit of God within you. Who can make it? Who can stand? Those have been sealed with the spirit of God. They can make it. Will it be easy? No. (laughs) Again, Revelation 6 paints a very vivid picture of suffering and evil that happens in the world. The Bible is never idealistic, detached from reality. It tells the truth about our situation, about our world, but it also tells the truth about you as a Christian. Who can stand? You. (laughs) But the power of the Spirit of God. Now, as those who can stand in the face of evil, the remaining question is how? How? How, how, how can I stand? It doesn't feel like I can. How should I seek the strength of the Spirit of God in order to endure in the day of trial? If the people of God are meant to stand in the day of trial, what are some ways that we here today should be seeking to endure by the power of the Spirit of God. Well, uh, let's just, for fun, let's take the four horsemen specifically and, and think about how we can endure and overcome, okay? So again, the, the, the first horse that represents spiritual deception. Believer in Jesus, you've been given the spirit of truth. You have the Holy Spirit of God so that you can recognize error, so that you can know your Bible and understand it and see the ways in which 
false teachers try to lead you astray. And I'm not just talking about false teachers in the church. That's certainly true. There's so many ways in which deviant pastors try to lead people astray, but also just out in our city. It's not just a spiritual deception that tries to imitate Jesus, but it's also a spiritual deception that, that tries to woo you away into something that feels easier. If you just do this, there, there's many ways to God. There's many ways to God. If you just do this, it would be so much easier. No, as Christians, we have the spirit of truth and we can resist that. We should recognize error. Or for the, the red horse that represents war and violence. Friends, if you have the Holy Spirit, you are meant to be a person of peace. In a culture that is constantly at each other's necks and speaks violence toward one another with such ease, we should be people of peace. You, you have the Spirit of God so that you can be an agent, even as Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount, a peacemaker, not just a peacekeeper, <laughs> but a peacemaker, someone who brings reconciliation. Endure, even in our culture that tries to set us against one another, we can endure and be people of peace. For the black horse, it brings famine and need. I think there's many ways that we can do this, one of which is we can volunteer tomorrow night for our UGM search and rescue where people are actually experiencing famine and need, and we can be an agent that brings help to them. But also, we can be people who, who, like I said, don't give in to the culture that tries to give us what we, everything we don't need and keep from us everything we do. We can have a sense of meaning and purpose. We can be people of depth. Let me put it that way. Not vapid on social media that just kind of is skidding on the top of life, just on the surface of things but is actually a person of depth who goes toward the things that they need, meaning and purpose. And then, as the pale horse, the, the sickness and death, we can be those who by the Spirit of God hope in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Everyone fears death. It's the one great common denominator within humanity. And I'm not saying it's not scary. I've seen it, and also I'm, I'm scared of it. You should see my WebMD history, friends. Anybody else? <laughs> but in the midst of that fear, as we, we see so much sickness and death that continues to run rampant in our world today, we can be people of strong hope who make it through by the Spirit of God, trusting that there is coming a day where death will not have the last word, and we will see that everything sad is coming untrue as Jesus brings about this resurrection of his people and we are with him forevermore. Friends, even in these four horsemen as they are working about today, as friends they are, you can endure. You can endure by the spirit of God. And, and one final way and then I'm out your way. To endure this type of trial, to endure this type of, this type of hardship, again, you need the Spirit of God. And one thing we say around here often is that prayer precedes power. You need power to make it through. You need help from the Holy Spirit. Be a person of prayer. Prayer precedes power. Everything that we need in order to make it through as Christians, we have access to. But friends, be asking for it. Be a person of prayer. So I actually wanna, I wanna close our time this evening and, and just have a little bit of an extended time 
in prayer. I have uh, mostly no idea what's going on in your life today. Um, I don't know how trial and hardship is affecting you. I don't know how the evils of this world are zapping your strength, but, but the spirit of God does. And, and I wanna spend some time just to, obviously we have our minute of silence that we do every week, but that's not enough this week. <laughs> I want us to be silent for a little bit longer and then I'll close our time in prayer. And I, I just wanna invite you, whatever hardship in you're in, whatever trial you're in, that you need help in, pray and ask for the spirit of God to help. So let's be silent. I just invite you to, to pray right now and to seek strength from the spirit of God. Let's be silent and I'll, I'll close in prayer here in a few. This teaching was recorded as part of our current sermon series at Icon Church. During our weekly gatherings, we move from the teaching to a time of response. While we recognize it may be hard to capture that as you listen online, we encourage you to take a moment to reflect on and respond to what the Spirit might be telling you in response to what you've heard. For more resources and to find out how you can join with us in gathering on Sundays, visit iconchurch.org. And as we say each week, Christ is all and we are His.